knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. What's going on, everybody? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to have a good friend of mine, Mr. Troy Pottinger, coming on. Now, for those of you that may, may not know Troy, Troy's a bona fide mountain buck killer. Now, if you don't believe me, head on over to his Instagram, check him out, and you'll see that he kills some freaking giants. And so, we're going to get Troy on here to talk about his story, talk about how he got started doing this, and we're going to talk about tips and tactics, you know, what he does, how he breaks apart areas, how he dives in, how, how he goes after these deer. I mean, these aren't just your normal everyday white-tailed deer that you're going to chase after. These are mountain bucks, and they are about as wary as they come. And so we get Troy on here to really just break it down, pick his mind, and just go down some rabbit holes. And so if you're interested in chasing after some mountain bucks like this, then this is the podcast for you. You don't want to miss out on this. And again, y'all, we just want to thank y'all for tuning in the Hunt Stand podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure you have the Hunt Stand app downloaded. You can get the free version. And if you want to unlock all the tools and features, make sure you upgrade to Pro. We really appreciate all the support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Whitetails? Let's talk well, some... Whatever. What are we talking about tonight, anyway? Man, uh, we're going to talk about... You're going to give us all your secret spots to where all these big mountain bucks are, and I'm going to get the entire country to come up and hunt where you shoot some big deer. I don't think most people in this country could fucking handle it. <laughs> I figured I you might it. I figured you might say something like that. I mean that, Will, and I'm not being a I am not being a smart ass. I've seen people come and go into this country and it's like I mean my my buddies for whitetail addictions came out here bear hunting and said, "How in the hell do you even hunt whitetails in this shit <laughs> i love it's it it's just it's it's you know one of these days maybe you come out and go hunting with me just promise not to bring people back to it i won't i won't i won't bring people you can take <laughs> me in blindfolded you take me in blindfolded and turn off my phone and i will come up there and hunt with you you got my word you'd be prepared to freeze your ass off you'd be prepared to handle some tough conditions you'd be prepared to not see a lot of deer but you might kill a 170 well, I'm game. When are we going? When are we when are we going? <laughs> All right, we better get rolling, oh well. Well, yeah, let's get rolling into it, man. Well well, Troy, okay. first and foremost, thank you for your time tonight and hopping on the Hunt Stand podcast with me. You bet, man. Good to be here. Absolutely, absolutely, man. Well, you know, one of the things I like to do to get this podcast rolling is I like for the guests to give our listeners kind of that thirty foot tree stand view 
of who you are and where where you're at, where you're from, and kind of how you've gotten to where you are in life now. Okay. Uh, I am born and raised uh, in, in northern Idaho. Uh, you'll hear Idaho people differentiate. I'm a northern Idaho boy, meaning I'm way up in the panhandle. Um, northern Idaho is a lot different than southern Idaho. It's just a different kind of habitat state terrain, everything. So I'm up in the mountains, the timbered, I'm up in the big timber country and big timber industry mountains of Northern Idaho. Okay. Uh, this is law. I grew up in a logging community. Um, my dad was a logger. My mother was a school teacher. And then my dad was, my dad was pretty sharp. We always had, we always had a ranch. We always had land. He always had cattle. Mm -hmm. Um, my dad was just always very like he always had about three things going at once and was very good at all of them. So anyway, I grew up a really cool, I feel like I grew up a really cool life as a, as a, you know, young kid. And as a teenager, um, I grew up back when Idaho was still pretty, I would guess say, I, I guess I would say not so well known. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we lived, we lived uh, out in the country, out in the mountains, um, very quiet, uh, really cool lifestyle. Uh, went to a neat high school, little logging community high school, and played all kinds of sports, loved athletics, loved football, went on to play college football. But um, the whitetails, the whitetails around my ranch that we had, and it was just a small, a small place. We had 50 acres. Um, but anyway, just the whitetails that lived all around me and that I grew up with got me, they, they got to me real at a really young age and I fell in love with hunting them when I was young. So that's a little bit of my background today. I, uh, let's see, I'm 25 years in as a, I'm a teacher. And then I also own my own business that I have ran for the last 30 years since I was 20, 21 mm -hmm. in the summers as a teacher, I've always ran my own construction business. So okay, yeah, everything, Everything from logging to build, building roads to building, I can build about anything you want built with uh, equipment. So, yeah, I work for a lot of private landowners in the summers and then really dove into whitetails when I was young and got real serious about it after I got out of college and, and basically picked a job on purpose that would give me time to scout and hunt the mountain whitetails of the Northwest. Man. I'm jealous of where you are. You have you have elk and giant whitetail right there next to you. Yeah, and and um, great bears. Oh, yeah. uh, unbelievable, unbelievable mule deer in the high country. No, I I love where I live, and and you're right. I don't know that we're really known for big whitetails, but we got big whitetails, um, big mountain deer, and then I love hunting elk too, and I love to hunt bears. So. Turkeys, bears, everything you could ever dream of, I have it right out my back door. Man, it sounds like a. am probably going to catch some hay for this, but it sounds like a, a almost a better version of Texas. <laughs> Too damn hot in Texas <laughs> for me. Hey, hey, we actually had a pretty good uh, rainstorm coming today, so that was pretty nice. We got about an inch and a half. So, man, now you also do some stuff for uh, Lone Wolf Gear and Whitetail Addicts TV, correct? It's, it's whitetail addictions, TV, um, 
Andre DeQuisto, Lone Wolf Custom Gear, also the original Lone Wolf tree stand owner. Okay. Um, Andre sold Lone Wolf back, I don't know, in the 2000s or something. If Andre's listening, I hope I got this right. <laughs> but but uh, he never sold the trademark or the name or anything. Okay. Um, Andre got back into the business about, I'm guessing, six, seven years ago mm-hmm. and created Lone Wolf Custom Gear with Cody, his son, Cody DeQuisto. Okay. Uh, and those guys always had Whitetail Addictions TV. And um, back in the 90s, I started using Andre's Lone Wolf tree stands. Ah. And they were the only damn tree stand. Andre was the only guy out there back in the 90s that built a tree stand that didn't make any noise. Really? Yeah, so Andre's original one-piece cut out a cast aluminum tree stand was just ingenious. And people that are listening, if they they should know the DeQuisto name or at least the Lone Wolf name. Yeah. So I've been hunting out of Andre built engineered stands since the 90s. And when I jumped into Andre's tree stands, it made all the difference in the world on my mountain bucks that are real skittish. I just I just quit having problems with stands making any noise and then there's you know they're just super lightweight they're sturdy and yeah it just changed the game for me back in the 90s so i got a hold of them later in life and got connected with some really good guys like justin hollinsworth and jared adoti from uh, next buck outdoors and then all of us guys just kind of ended up together through connections under andre and started filming and helping produce footage for whitetail addictions tv and Whitetail Addictions, now that Andre and Cody are back rolling with Lone Wolf Custom Gear, it's it's doing really well. I like it. I like it. Sounds like y'all got a really good thing going, man. You do. It, it's it's a good thing, and the best part, it's with great people. I, I just love those guys, all of them. They're great, genuine, good damn people. And that's what it's all about, man. You know, working and doing what you love with good people just makes it that much easier. Yeah, it's a brotherhood with those guys. Um, we go out. Andre has us all out every summer to his farm in Iowa. Mm. Um, he treats us all just unbelievable. Um, the stuff, you know, just my son Ty films with me too. And uh, he's he's the college football player now. So his time allowed to film right now isn't a lot. But, uh, I mean, we've been out there together to the get-togethers. Um, just really cool people. And in today's world, it's it's nice to still get that from the guys that are taking care of you. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Yep. Well, man, let's dive into what you do. You know, mountain whitetails, you know, big woods bucks. You know, talk to us a little bit about, talk to us about the areas that you're hunting. Kind of give the listeners um, a little bit, a little taste of what you're, where you are and where you're chasing after these big whitetail. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I'm 52 years old this year and that's like young. I said, yeah, I'm, st- I love, you know, I feel like I'm 25 at heart still, but just a little <laughs> wiser, Yeah, a little wiser. So a little better decisions. But anyway, um, I hunt basically two different scenarios. Um, I hunt a lot of what I call small mountain country. And I would say that's that 4,000 foot down to 1000 feet elevation type stuff mm. that has that a lot of times has agriculture in the bottom. Okay. So I would, I would call those my ag bucks, even though they have 
big, beautiful mountains up to 4,000, 4,500 feet above them. And then I hunt what I call my backcountry whitetails. And that's probably my favorite. The backcountry whitetails are 10, 20, 30, even 40 miles, 50 miles away from any type of civilization, any type of agriculture, true big woods. I mean, we're talking as big a woods as you'll find in the lower 48. Yeah. And mountains that run up to eight, 9,000 feet um, and bucks that have never seen agriculture in their life. So when I say an ag buck, <laughs> it's a mountain buck with some ag in the bottoms. When I say a backcountry whitetail or a, a high mountain whitetail, that's referring to literally bucks that have lived in the mountains their entire life. They've had to migrate. They migrate every year because of the snow levels. Mm -hmm. And they'll move as far as 10 to 15 miles in the winter to survive. Wow. And then they'll always move back up into their summer and fall ranges. And, and the snow dictates their life, the snow levels. So Man. those are the two types of uh, areas that I hunt. And if, if any of your listeners do their research, um, I have more access to public land than anyone else does in the lower 48 up where I'm at here. Yeah, we're going hunting together one day, man. We got it. We got to. We got to. <laughs> so it's not, I don't hunt congregated deer. Um, they may not have even seen a human. I, I've, you know, I, I hunt some bucks that don't lay eyes on humans very often. Do they hear humans? Yeah. Do they hear the loggers? Yeah. Uh, do they hear the ATVs? Now, now, remember this too. I mean, just to paint a picture for your listeners, this is logging country. Mm -hmm. So it is, there's roads, there's roads built into all of this big country. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it would take nothing for a big whitetail to get two three miles away from any road, four miles from a road and envision really rugged, steep in places, almost mountain goat like terrain Wow. to move around in and then hide out. So if, if a old whitetail that wants to stay away and be a hermit, and stay away from any type of human pressure. Uh, they can they can find big pockets of areas to hide out in. Yes, that's that doesn't have a road cut through it, but there's roads close enough to where they hear vehicles and whatnot. But you you can't always get real close to them unless you're willing to really work your ass off for it. Yeah. Yep. Man, it sounds like beautiful country though. So, kind of tell us how do you how do you break down these chunks of public land and, you know, how are you going about going into these places, going to set up stands and hunting these? Like what's your first method of approach when you're looking at going after these bucks? Well, you know, it's been decades of research and working really, I, I put a ton of time into it. Um, before I was married, I was, I, I always had a goal and I stuck to it every year for probably about 10 years. Cause I didn't get married till I was 30. Okay. And uh, when I got out of college and even during late high school and, and in college, I would put a lot of time in, in the summers, but I always had a goal right when I got out of college to spend at least 220 to 250, at least partial days a year in the woods. Mm -hmm. Even if, that, even if that meant after work, you know, so Years ago, I really, I really uh, keyed in on 
favorable habitat, meaning deer need to live where they have very favorable habitat in the mountains because of predators. Yeah. We have grizzlies, wolves, mountain lions, black bears, coyotes are low man on the chain, uh, food chain out here when it comes to a predator, just like nothing to a deer. They don't even bother them. Um, but we have these alpha predators. So white tails position themselves in these mountains where they have wind advantages, where they have, because our, our country is so heavily treed, our forests are just gigantic and thick and we ha- we get a lot of rain. So we grow timber extremely fast. That's why this is a great timber industry area. Mm. Um, and we have a ton of underbrush. So whitetails, what they do is, is they, they settle into very favorable wind advantageous habitats that provide great security cover, great feed. This country that I hunt in, all three states, northwest Montana, northern Idaho, eastern Washington, the mountains all hold great water sources. Lots of runoff streams, full-time full, year-round springs, uh, creeks, rivers. I mean, just water everywhere. Yeah. So they, they usually don't have a hard time finding water up here. Man. So all that to st- say, I started keying in on when I was younger on great habitat, uh, great security cover, wind advantageous uh, areas where whitetails could use the daily prevailing winds and thermals to keep them alive from predators. Okay. Okay. Because I'm like probably fourth or fifth on their chain as a hunter of being (laughs) of what they're afraid of the most. You're not, you're not at the top of the food chain. Not, not for the predators out here. And you know, I'm a pretty decent whitetail hunter, but I guarantee you the bucks I hunt are more worried about the pack of wolves. that's going to eat their ass. Yeah, that's true. That's true. or Or a mountain lion. That is very true. So what happens out here is you hunt a different whitetail. You're hunting a whitetail that is on edge and very careful all the time because they get hunted 24, seven, 365 days a year. And and they're crackheads. They're straight up crackheads. I mean, they, they are on edge all the time. It amazes me that some of them can get to age 10 out here, 10 or 11, man. It just, um, it just amazes me with the harsh winters, the snow, the migrations, the predators. I mean, I've had white tails on camera that have just been torn apart by mountain lions. Dang. What, I mean, just stuff you'll never see anywhere else. Would you say that these deer are more skittish than a mule deer or elk that's up on the mountains? Um, mule deer are stupid. They're not <laughs> skittish. And they're not half as smart as a white tail. And that's why the white tails have thrived so well out here. Our muley population suffers because the predators just eat the hell out of them. Yeah. The predators, the predators, uh, elk are easy to hunt, in my opinion. I'm not being a jerk at all. I'm not being a smart ass, but there is nothing like a mountain white tail buck uh, trying to walk him or trying to hunt him down with a bow. Uh, elk, I usually hunt elk three to five days a year and get a bull killed. And I'm, and again, the whitetails have taught me how to be so more, the whitetails have taught me to be extremely detailed in how I hunt, uh, how I bow hunt them. And I only bow hunt. I quit gun hunting back in the nineties because I truly in love. I truly enjoyed the proximity of killing a buck with a bow in the mountains close. Mm -hmm. And, and I wanted to kill them on their terms. Okay. Uh, 
I didn't want to sit across the canyon with a thousand yard gun with a scope and kill a deer that didn't even know that he was being hunted. Yeah. That's just not my thing. I, I, I just, man, I feel for those animals that get whacked at a thousand yards away because they don't even have a chance. So anyway, I chose very heavily covered timbered areas where that doesn't happen, where people can't kill a whitetail unless they're within 50 yards of them or less. Those are the kind of areas I choose mm-hmm. um, where, where deer can get old and where they prefer to hide out and survive the predators. And, and those are the types of places I dive into. I have certain elevations that I really like. Um, I've obviously learned that over the years. The, the whitetails have taught me more about how to hunt them than anything. There was okay. never a book. There was never a book written on mountain whitetails. No, that's that's all experience, man. So, so I just I just been writing my own, you know. Yep. And and diving into it, I remember when I was young and told some local guys around town that I was going to start bow hunting mountain whitetails. They laughed at me. <laughs> I mean, they literally laughed at me. Man. And and they just said, "You're wasting your freaking time, kid." It sounds, you know. like, it sounds like the old guys that are here in this small Texas town of mine, anytime you bring up that you're going bow hunting for a deer, you know, this is a little old German town and they're like, oh, you're going to go, you're going to go chase some deer with them stick and string. And it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> and you go shoot yeah. a 140, 150 and like, oh God dang, that's a big deer, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And it's just the mindset, you know, the, I've never been one to follow conventional wisdom. I just, you know. Like I said, I like to pave my own path and do my own thing. And I, I just decided when I was young, that's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to, I wanted to kill them on their terms up close. Yep. So dove into it. Uh, my background's in kinesiology and biology. So for me, studying the science of a whitetail was huge for me, even in high school. Yeah. I, I, I didn't read, like, I tried to read some stuff back in the day about guys hunting them in the Midwest and whatnot. And it was cool to see the bucks and it was super cool to read about guys killing them. But I knew that that a lot of that stuff didn't translate into my mountains. No, it's so it's a different. So I just, right. So I just dove into these animals and I had a really smart whitetail hunter tell me once, and this was way back. This was in my twenties. And this was a guy that was actually not in my state, but he hunted big woods. Mm-hmm. And all he said to me, and I never forgot it, is he said, let those deer teach you more than anything. Don't listen to people. Don't listen to somebody that has no experience and no, uh, they don't have a resume, uh, you know, of killing bucks where you do. And if they don't have a, you know, if they don't have a background in it, don't listen. He said, you go out and figure it out based on what the deer teach you. So it made sense to me in my teens and twenties to read everything I could on whitetail biology. I just wanted to know what made whitetails tick because I figured no matter where a whitetail live, they're still biologically, they're going to tick the same in a lot of ways and they're going to adapt to what their obstacles are. Right. So I dove into that. I dove into the science and what I found was in my late teens, early twenties is that in my mountains and in an Idaho, you cannot put out bait. So I thought, how am I going to set myself up on whitetails and kill a big mountain buck that has literally not hundreds of thousands, but even a million acres to roam and to, and to hide out in millions of acres. How am I going to kill him out in this giant woods? Well, I dove into the biology of whitetails and really got interested in scrapes when I was young. Okay. 
And as a shed hunter, picking up sheds in the spring, I always, I picked up a lot of sheds in my teens and twenties. So that means I walked hundreds of miles a spring. Easy. A lot of miles. Easy to walk a hundred miles in a spring. We probably walked more like two or 300 a spring back before I was married and had children. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we had had a a little bit more time. But again, like I said, I didn't get married and slow down till I was 30. Yeah. I mean, I was a going son of a bitch for a lot of years and, and I was never around. Everybody was playing softball. Everybody was on their boats. Mm -hmm. Everybody was doing the social scene. I was in the mountains. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And always by myself, always just by myself and learning from these deer. Well, stemming back from when I was a teen and early twenties in college and trying to figure it out, um, picking up sheds taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about where the bucks were losing their antlers. And in my country, my bucks shed early. So if a big white-tailed deer sheds his antlers in late December, early mm-hmm. January, guess what that tells me about him? That's where he was hiding out. Oh. So, so I started killing bucks that I had sheds to. Okay. And I started killing them in the same spots. Okay. Okay. And and I started really paying close attention to scrapes in the spring. That's huge. Because back in the old days nobody really understood scrapes or really talked about it much or really gave them much thought. They only hunted them during the hunting season. Well, I dove into the whole biology of a whitetail and learned real fast from seeing bucks, even on my little ranch uh, in April and May and June, when they're growing their antlers, Mm -hmm. watching bucks and does hit these licking branches and hit these scrapes. I knew that there was way more to a scrape than what people were giving it credit for. So I started hunting scrapes, started hunting where I found sheds, started killing deer a year later in the shed areas and where those big scrapes were. And then it all just took off. It just all started clicking for you. It started clicking. It started making sense. I always based it on fact and biology and what I was seeing, not what I was told. Um, And then, yeah, I just, it just made sense. You know, I started watching deer and I would, I had been watching them on our little place since I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm on our little ranch and I've been watching how they behaved even in the off season. And the big picture of the whitetails in the huge country started making sense to me. So then, uh, in my thirties, I started breaking down big, big tracks of country looking for those top end, very rare, uh, five, six, seven, eight year old bucks. Um, and really started to try to key in on that age group, five years and older. When I was 33, I killed a buck that I found his shed, watched him all summer in a clear cut, in a logging clear cut. Is the only reason I could see him. Yeah. Went, in and ki- went in and killed him right away in early archery. And when I killed him, he was the number two in the state of Idaho archery. Golly. And when I, and when I did that, when I found the shed, when I'd spent all the whole summer, I'd logged all day. And I would get off my logging job and then I'd drive a couple hours to go watch him just to watch what he was doing with the wind in the summer. Jeez. So I was figuring it all out. And then when I killed him, that just changed me. As soon as I killed that big deer, the first time I hunted him and I killed him September 1st on a big scrape licking branch. And it was almost a hundred degrees out. <sighs> Now, nobody would ever believe in the world back then. And I told people how I killed him, and I think they just thought I was full of shit. 
but that big deer was hitting this licking branch that he was walking out through a saddle on every evening and every morning. And we're talking a steep, we're talking on this top of a steep mountain, very steep. And I just played, you know, back in the days of binoculars and watching a deer from a mile away. That's what I was doing. Okay. I didn't even have a trail camera on him then. So would you say, you know, we're talking about like you're finding these sheds where these deer have been in the spring, you find their sheds and you kill that buck and you're kind of diving in a little bit about some of the terrain features that these deers are in, that these bucks are in. Kind of tell us what are some of the terrain features that you look for that these bucks are really keyed in on that they places they really love to be. Well, I think the terrain features are secondary, but it does naturally guide them, which they don't really think about. The number one thing, number one, 100%, when I'm dead and gone, anybody that wants to be a mountain whitetail bow hunter will agree with me that's good at it. They always position themselves with a wind advantage. Right. Always. Every day. Every day of their life. Um, just picture in your mind, a long mountain ridge covered in timber picture in your mind. If that ridge is running east and west and you got a south wind, if you got a south wind that day, they're going to be positioned about three quarters of the way up that mountain so that they get the daily thermal all day while they're bedded. Yep. They're also going to pick up that prevailing wind over the top of that ridge and they can literally lay down if it's a south wind headed north. They can literally, and the, the ridge is running east and west. They can literally lay down on a hot day on a north side, catch that prevailing wind over the top, rolls down onto the back of their head. They've got a thermal coming up in their face the majority of the day. Mm-hmm. They pretty much have you beat, and they're usually laying in about the thickest shit you can find <laughs> so that nothing can creep up on them. So how the hell do you kill these things? You have, well, you, one, I have to determine where they're bedding. And when I say bedding, I don't mean the exact bed because mountain bucks bed different in a zone daily and they'll base it on the wind that day. Okay. So they might be on the other side of the ridge the next day, if that makes sense, if the wind's coming out of the North. Yep. Yep. So they position themselves and they also feed in the evenings towards that wind to help them because as soon as that prevailing thermal goes downhill in the evening, Mm -hmm. they don't have the advantage of that, of that thermal anymore when they're ascending off a mountain. But what they'll do is feed with that prevailing coming into their nose. So they'll drop over on the other side and head south. Yes. Yes. And what I, what I do a lot of times is I'll kill a buck on a certain side of a mountain and I'm set up for him on both sides and not necessarily a mountain. It could just be a ridge. Okay. But a lot of times I'll kill a buck and I can call it where he's going to travel that day based on the prevailing. So you have a south wind. Okay. They're bedded up on the, on the north side, right? Right. And let's say the wind's blowing out of the south towards the north. Okay. And it's, let's say it's early season. It's real hot. Yep. He's sitting over there on that north side. It's nice and cool. He's got an uphill thermal most of the day. He's got the south wind blowing over the top and down into kind of a tunnel there, kind of a leeward side. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, Which, so, so how are you, how are you setting up to kill that guy then? 
you, so he'll always he'll the the old bucks the the ones that figure it out so that they don't get ambushed by predators or by humans. Mm-hmm. He'll move that evening towards the south to feed. Okay. He'll almost always move that evening because it's a south wind. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Because he because he loses his thermal in the afternoon. It starts going downhill the last hour of the daylight. Yeah. So he loses that, but then he can use the prevailing to get where he wants to. And, and what my bucks do is they'll almost always have, not almost always. I mean, it's just kind of, it's pretty, it's pretty consistent when you get to a certain age structure because they get it figured out. Mm-hmm. He'll always have that wind advantage. He'll move towards the south. He'll feed somewhere on that south side. So how do you kill these deer? You got to kill them outside of the rut. You got to kill them close to their bed. And you got to kill them on a wind that's perfect for them or almost perfect for them. Mm-hmm. And you got to kill them off that edge of that wind. And you can usually have to use some type of terrain barrier feature to protect you where okay. you set up. Okay. And then what I do is I add the scrape to the equation because mm-hmm. he'll always check it on his way. Okay. And I'll throw that right in his face. So basically what I do is I trap whitetails. Like a trapper would. Uh, so you're creating, how are you creating create these scrapes? I, I create these scrapes, these mock scrapes and put them in their face. During the rut, I hunt and overmark big community scrapes. Okay. Where the whole, where the whole herd congregates. Let's say I'm in a drainage that's 15 miles long. Yep. Yep. And let's say I'm eight miles up in the drainage on a really good ridge. Okay. I will a lot of times find a big communal scrape where multiple doe family groups use and that bucks have learned in four or five years of their life to check when it gets close to the rut, Yep. which, which ladies are getting close and my bucks in the mountains will come for miles. Damn. So I'll target these communal scrapes, community hub scrapes, no other type of scrape is worth hunting out here, but the community scrapes are incredible or the mock community scrapes that I create for big bucks. And I really confuse them. Like <laughs> it blows their mind. And all of a sudden they got this big scrape in their territory that they didn't know about for five years <laughs> because I don't play the game on them until they're old enough to, that I want to kill them. Okay. Okay. So if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I also, over mark and condition all the deer at my community scrapes to think there's five or six other deer that they never see, but are always in their scrape. So what that creates is a frequency, especially with older bucks, a more daylight frequency of checking those scrapes. Okay. So yeah, then, then they're not nocturnal, if you will. They're hardly ever nocturnal where I hunt because I hunt in deep security cover where even the does, everybody feels safe all day long. Okay. I don't waste my time on any scrapes that only have nighttime visits. That's a bad spot. Yeah. I go, I I get into where the deer feel extremely comfortable during the day. So how are you finding those areas? So it's pretty much like you said, you know, it's pretty, (laughs) you got to kill them in their beds, which is where they're comfortable. Close to to their beds. Yes. Close to their beds, not in their beds. And 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 it's a bedding zone. Right. You know, it's deer that live in small congregated areas have beds. Okay. Mountain deer have bedding zones that they use to stay alive in. Right, right. 
So how? So it could be it could be fifty to a hundred acres to two hundred acres of an area that they bet in. How are you finding those? Like what what do you what are you looking for? Like let's say, um, <laughs> how do I find them? A million miles of boots on the ground and figuring it out over the years and using maps and bakes, basing it on security cover, great wind, diving into it on foot, break, gritting it, breaking it all down, reading every speck of sign that's been there for decades, just all of that. Old, old traditional rubs, you know, long time standing. I've got some community scrapes that I hunted 30 years ago that I hunt today that are just as good today. Damn. So that's yeah, pretty cool. All right, y'all, we're going to interrupt this podcast real quick for a quick word from our sponsors. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Bowtech Archery. Refuse to follow. If you're in the market for a new bow this fall, make sure you check out Bowtech and the easy tuning capabilities of the deadlock system. I've been shooting the SR350 this year, and tuning that thing has been so easy. Don't have to worry about twisting strings or doing any of that razz and jazz. So if that's what you're looking for, make sure you check out Bowtech Archery today. Up next, we got Lacrosse Boots and their Navigator Series. The world is raw, rugged, and relentless. Navigate it accordingly. The Navigator Series is born to take your hunt further. Check out the comfortable and versatile line of lace-up hunting boots from Lacrosse today. Up next, we got Federal Premium. Go beyond what you ever thought possible with their lineup of Terminal Ascent ammunition. I've been using this ammo this year so far, and it has worked phenomenally for me. From Predators all the way up to a beautiful Hill Country, Texas Axis Buck, it worked amazingly. One shot, that buck didn't go anywhere, about 250 yards. That buck dropped right in his tracks. Literally didn't have to do any tracking. So if you're in the market for some new ammunition, check out Federal Premium and their lineup of Terminal Ascent. Up next, we got Browning, the best there is. I'll be using their new lineup of Ovix gear this fall, so I'm really excited to check that out and just get to use it this fall all the way from the Whitetail Woods up in the mountains chasing elk. And finally, we got WorkSharp, the knife sharpening company. I use their MK2 knife sharpener on every knife in my house, in the kitchen, in my pack. It makes sharpening your knives a breeze. My wife even loves to use this thing. It makes everything super easy. So if that's what you're looking for, make sure you check out WorkSharp today. All right, y'all, we're going to get back to this episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. What do you, what do you, okay, so then knowing that, like, what do you have to say for, you know, let's say that there's a guy out in my neck of the woods that wants to come and do it and all he can do is e-scout you know what kind of i guess tips if you will would you have to give him to look for in terms of e-scouting you mean you want me to tell everybody how to do this the how to do it without having to work for it (laughs) (laughs) sure sure no no um that's always the million dollar question people ask me is you know make this easier for me troy so that if i come and try to do this I'll tell you what you got to look for is you is and I don't think very many whitetail hunters are trained this way just because they don't hunt mountain whitetails that are heavy have heavy predation. Right. The first thing that I start with on a map is and I know I got a lot of guys doing this now cuz guys come to my boot camps mm-hmm. and I teach and I teach them how I do it. So in a nutshell what I do is I have a big screen and obviously e-scouting has become really big in the last 10 years for me. Big time. It just makes it even easier Yeah. because I learned everything the hard way first. So then when I was able to add it to a map and e-scout, it just, it was just like, this is amazing. You yeah. know, now to, to, for your listeners that have never learned any of the stuff I've learned on the, with boots on the ground over the decades, 
I always start with, and I teach this in my classes, um, I always start with Google Earth on one screen and Topo on the other. Okay. And I overlay them, click back and forth. And what I look for is certain elevations where big white tails like to bed and live and survive. And then I look for the elevations that are usually lower where the doe family groups live in a little easier terrain. Mm -hmm. And then I play the game, not the game, but I play, I have a system that I look at all the terrain features that basically allow a mature whitetail buck for two or three months to be able to monitor doe family groups by running lateral lines or just being upwind of the thermals during the day, even in his bed. He can keep track of does that are two, three, four, five, six, seven hundred yards away with the mountain thermals. And then I will look at those topographical features that allow him to get down to those big community scrapes, check on those does, go back up. Because deer run vertical year round, except for the rut in the mountains. Yeah. They they bed high, they feed lower at night, they water lower at night a lot of times, and then they go back up in the morning in the daylight in bed high. Well, the bucks do that even higher above the does, the old bucks. Okay. So what I do is I target those zones where big buck core, and when I say big, old buck core bedding areas overlap if you drew circles where the great doe family group living zones are if that makes sense it is and then it i is. slide it then i slide into those spots in the off season i walk the heck out of it and mm -hmm. i break down all the old sign all the trails find sheds um as long as the snow hasn't pushed my big bucks out before january 15th i still find a lot of sheds in the high country you know, and I do have to keep note of when the big snows come. Because if the real big snows come before January 15th, there's going to be a lot of sheds on the migratory paths. Okay. If that makes sense. Which can be misleading. Yes, unless you know what you're looking for and you keep track of that. Right, right. Right. Okay. Now, do I do I go find a lot of sheds on the migra on the in the migrations? Absolutely. Yeah. But my oldest whitetails tend to shed first. Really? Yeah, they're the ones where their testosterone drops way off after working so hard. Yeah, and then those antlers just fall off sooner. And those and it and it protects them old bucks. They drop earlier and they're not packing that much weight. The younger whitetails in the mountains will carry their antlers longer most for the most part. Okay. Now a very stressed young whitetail will drop his early too. Okay. So there's just all these dynamics that come into play. But back to your original question, I dive into those favorable topographical features for whitetails and wind and security cover and that they have those scrapes involved and their communication hubs. And then I love to come in when I set up and hunt and kill these deer. I love to come in lateral on lateral elevations, mm -hmm. always off to the side of the thermals and the prevailings or off to the side of the thermal. And I use the prevailing. A lot of times I set up on the east side of a big buck on a scrape because I don't hardly ever get an east wind. And I enter a lot from the east. And then I play the game of trapping him at my scrapes before he descends down off an elevation for the evening to, to feed or during the rut, check on does. And then I'll catch him in the morning coming in the back door a lot of times when he's ascending. I meant descending in the evening, sorry. Yeah. Ascending mornings. Sorry for your listeners. 
um, descending in the evenings or catching him ascending in the mornings, I'll come in real high and catch him before he enters his bedding zone at one of my scrapes and kill him there. Now, during the rut, I sit all day because my bucks will check those scrapes all day long. Damn. You got me thinking all sorts of things right now. And it's all wind driven. It's all wind and thermal driven. And if you come into the mountains and you don't understand wind and thermals, they will kick your ass as a whitetail bow hunter. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, hell, I've had a hard enough time already in the elk woods and chasing after mule deer. You know, some of those Colorado mountains can be a little shifty on you. So I couldn't even. They imagine. are. And, and elk, are, elk are easy because you can move around on them and make noise. And as long as they don't see you or smell you, you got it. With the whitetail, they can't hear you. If they hear you, they avoid you. If they smell you, they don't even come near you. At least with elk, you can use sound and vocalization to move all over. You can stomp around all you want if they can't see you or smell you. Mm-hmm. And then you can and then you can adjust yourself with elk with the thermals and the winds and whatnot and move, you know, with a whitetail. Good luck trying to walk up on a whitetail in this country. Yeah, I would say elk are, elk and mule deer are definitely more inquisitive and I mean, I've seen that myself, like a whitetail. No, they're going to be gone. I mean, hell. They're low tol- They're very low tolerant animals. Yes. Like, I'll, I'll give an example. I mean, uh, this past January, I was hunting mule deer in Arizona, uh, over the counter, public land with a bow. And it was pretty some pretty open country. And the guys we were sharing camp with, they had a couple of those uh, shoot-through ultimate predator decoys. And they had a mule deer one, and all they had left was a shoot through cow elk. And I said, "Give me that." I mean, I've got some mule deer that I could walk right at. And uh, my buddy that was with me, we had these mule deer show up, and they're on in this saddle, and there really wasn't a way to get to them. Right. And so he, my buddy's going, "What are you going to do, man? You just going to drop over the backside and try and get to them quick?" I said, "No, I'm going to walk straight at him with this decoy." soon as they saw that decoy head pop up and they see this cow elk, yep, they immediately start coming to me. <laughs> I'm shitting you not. I had six does and a shooter buck walking right at me. And the pro- I believe you. They're, they're so inquisitive. You. And, the, and the, you know, the, just, the problem was I didn't have anything to hide behind or get to. And so eventually I just had too many does work their way around me before I could get a solid shot on the buck. And long story short... Missed the buck at 80 yards. Didn't happen for me, but that's okay as an experience. But yeah, just to kind of, to your point, they're, they're, they have no tolerance like a mule deer does. Yeah, the the mountain whitetail, if they would have saw that cow elk pop up, they would have split. Yeah. And like I, I've tried whitetail decoys before. I mean, in Texas, they're, they're not even really tolerable to them. Right. And I've got a hunt, you know, not far from you in Oklahoma and and the deer do behave different when I hunt the South or when I hunt the Midwest, mm-hmm. um, which has been, I, I look at it as if it's been great for me because I, I just love going to the Midwest or the South sometimes just to get a break from these crackheads. <laughs> even though, even though I love these mountain whitetails, they're so careful. Yes. Um, but it's kind of nice. It's like a vacation when I get to go to the Midwest. I love it. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're, you can, uh, they're, they're more tolerant and a lot of it has to do with the predation. Yeah. It's about, it's about those predators, the whitetails that have evolved in the Northwest and have learned to survive this heavy predation. Mm-hmm. 
they've evolved the way they have for a reason. That's why there's still whitetails around. Yeah. And, and they're moving up higher. I mean, I, I've had whitetails at 6,000 feet elevation. Sheesh. Yeah, well, and, and I, I hunt, yes, go ahead. Go no, ahead, I, I was going to say that kind of leads to my next questions. You know, like what elevations are you seeing these bucks at most? I really like 3,500 to 5,500 feet. Okay. And my does tend to live at about 45 down to 25 a lot. 2000, you know, even the does will live all the way in the bottoms behind people's houses too. But when you go into this mountain country, again, back to my early on in the podcast, I talked about the, what I call agriculture mountain bucks and then true big woods backcountry bucks. You, you play the game, you, you dive into the equation that, that you get with those two and you play it similar 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 <laughs> sorry similarly can't talk tonight that's okay uh, but you pl- you play it close but when you get into the true backcountry high elevation whitetails mm-hmm. it's like the guy like me that lives way out in the country on a dirt road that nobody's supposed to come up unless i know him <laughs> sitting on the front porch with a shotgun yeah that's how those bucks behave because they're very reclusive and they live alone. Mm-hmm. Um, when I dive down into the more agricultural slash mountain whitetails, those deer are more tolerant of humans, noises, and rightfully so. It's the stimulus that they're used to. Yeah, They listen to the farmers and they listen to the ranchers and, and they just sit up on the hill and listen to it all. You get into that backwoods stuff, those deer know when they hear that, Cummins diesel mine rolling up into the mountains at, at three in the morning. That, oh, if I park, shit. that if I park and this goes with, you know, anybody that's rolling up into the mountains, if, if I park too close to a buck, I'm trying to kill. Yeah. I'll never see him that day. God. He just goes so the other I'm way. Usually, I'm, I'm usually parking on the backside of a mountain okay. and it's usually a mile or two hike in for the most part. Yeah. To get on them or, park and ride my e-bike three miles in okay because it makes no noise and then bail off my e-bike and hike in a half a mile to a stand that really works good on these mountain deer because they never know i'm coming yeah so then they do their normal routine in the daylight Mm -hmm. at my scrapes okay (laughs) so talking about scrapes you know i want to i kind of want to come back to these how are you locating and identifying these scrapes? And I, I guess to, to kind of narrow it down specifically the community scrapes. And again, I know you kind of like, you've got that bet, the boots on the ground, you've got the knowledge and the research behind those, but But you got to know what you're looking for, right? Yeah. What, what do you, how, how do you know that? Or what are you looking for? They have all the evidence, right? The, the big communal scrapes that have been there for decades mm-hmm. have all the evidence on the scrape. The, they'll have multiple licking branches, multiple licking branches that are torn, tattered, bent down vertically, chewed off. You, you can just see it all if you know what you're looking if, – if you know what to look for. Okay. The, the ground below it will often be very large in size where they've pawed at and beat up these scrapes for decades. Um, it's a community of deer hub, a social network where they all go, especially living in the mountains where they're all spread out. Mm-hmm. 
but they will go check these and it's nothing for a deer. And I've talked about this a lot on podcasts. It's nothing for my bucks or my does to travel half a mile to a mile to check a community scrape in it, it, during the day. Nothing at all. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't take very long for a whitetail in these mountains to walk a mile. No, they just kind of cruise along and they'll be there in 10 minutes, you know, easy, easy, just swooping down through the ridges and drop off onto a bench, so to speak, hit that community scrape. You know, the big dog, the big dogs usually check them when it's, I mean, my, if I have a communal scrape close to a mature bucks bedding area, he'll check it weekly and during the daylight. If I have a community scrape not near one of my big target bucks's target bucks bedding areas, then he may only start checking it a little later in the year when it gets closer to the rut. Okay. So what I do is, is I take the game, I take that that community scrape game, multiple deer profiles right at the big buck and put it in his face as a trap. Meaning I put that scent down, I build it, I make it very authentic to what he's used to seeing. And all of a sudden when he's laying in his bed, he smells that 150, 200 yards away. And is like, what in the hell is going on here during the summer? <laughs> yeah. It throws him off. I mean, how very, I'm very aggressive with that. And it works like it's unbelievable. How are you making these things? Like talk to kind of talk us through your thought process when you're making these scrapes. Well, back to, learn from the deer and let the deer teach you. So I build them, I mimic and emulate exactly what I see in specific drainages. Okay. I use specific to those deer in that drainage, their favorite species of licking branch. And if I have to harvest one and tie it to a tree, I will. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. And let me backtrack in a little bit on this, how I did this when I was young before I ever had any synthetics. And then I, because I spent a lot of time hiking these areas and really breaking down the country and learning from the deer, I'll build the scrape based on a lot like what I see in the, in the drainage. Cause I'll usually find two or three of these in a big drainage, sometimes five to 10, 20, you know, a huge drainage. I might find 20 of it, of them in it, but it might take me five years to find them, find a bunch of them because we're talking 10, 15 mile drainages sometimes, sometimes 20. Damn. But anyway, it's just a lot of learning and paying very close attention to what deer build. I mimic that. I'll do multiple hanging licking branches. I'll twist them, tear them. Uh, very careful with my scent for your listeners. Um, I'll wear latex gloves. I mean, I'll, it's like artwork to me. I will sculpt them and I'll make it look exactly like what that buck's been seeing his whole life at communal scrapes. Okay. And then I'll tear the dirt up in the same type of fashion, kind of the size I see of the big scrapes. Sometimes I build clusters. Sometimes I build a double. Um, you know, it's just kind of fun that way as far as just adding a little bit of that artwork to it based on what I've seen. Um, and, and tying in the right species of licking branch. Again, multiple hanging licking branches because this isn't just a scent attractant. It's a visual attractant. So let's say a big, I, let's say I send this scent at this a big deer I'm trying to kill. And I know he's bedded up in that area based on 
uh, where I found his sheds or where I've seen him or where I got a trail camera picture of him or where I've seen him ascending or descending on a lower community scrape. Anyway, I'll go right at him. I'll put all this scent out, but what happens is, and I run all my cam- all my scrapes that I build, I run a picture camera and a video camera okay. so that I, because I want detailed information on that specific deer and the way he behaves. So you got lots so of cameras. I've always, if, if you run into one of my sites, you're going to see at least two cameras, sometimes three. <laughs> you work with a camera sponsor? Uh, not really. I need to. <laughs> so yeah, any, any well, camera guys listening, hit up Troy. Well, yeah. <laughs> the Lone Wolf Custom Gear guys are pretty good to me. But no, I, I, I do it on purpose so that I can get intel. Yeah. And then I always hang a Windicator in the video camera view. That way, when he rolls in for the first time, second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth time, whatever, on video, I am breaking down what wind direction he's using to to get to the scrape. Uh. So that tells me a lot about him. And I'll get him there. And what he finds in the scrape is not one deer. He finds multiple deer. So I run a mix that's, that's my own. That's buck fever synthetic foundation based, but I have this mix of remember my backgrounds in biology. Yeah. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's it's all synthetic, so it never rots. But when he rolls into my scrape, he isn't finding one deer. He's finding multiple deer profiles oh, of shit. different glands and different deer. He's a five year old buck and he's like, What in the hell? How did I miss this? So, so what I end up, well, so what I end, go ahead, Will. I was gonna say on just I didn't mean to interrupt you, but on these no, wind, these wind windicators that you're talking about, yeah, because I feel like that's kind of a a little nugget there that some people may not have caught. What are you using for windicators, and where are you placing them relevant <laughs> yeah. to your scrape? Right. So if anybody ever gets on my YouTube now and just just Google my name, Troy Pottinger, I don't. I don't have a YouTube that I'm trying to blow up. When I retire from my teaching job, I'm going to work really hard on my YouTube page. I enjoy it. Okay. But my, but my YouTube page just has multiple videos of public land mountain bucks walking into my scrapes. If you look real close and you break down my videos, you'll see you'll see a hanging old man's beard. And what that is, is it's a moss that grows on all the red fir trees out here okay. and other, other species of trees too. Okay. But I hang long strips of that moss in the viewfinder, somewhere close to the scrape, usually up a little higher and a little bit off in the background. But when that stuff blows in the wind, it is incredible. I never have to take a windicator with me into the woods. And when I set up on deer and build for the first time, and I'll take my boot camp classes in and I show them this. Mm-hmm. I literally spend a minimum of an hour to two hours before I build a scrape sitting and watching the old man's beard in the trees at my scrapes that I'm going to, that I'm going to build so that I can determine whether or not the wind will work at that spot to kill. What if you don't have old man's beard? I, I always do. These well, mountains are full of it. If I don't, you could do a ribbon. Um, you could hang a piece of yarn. I've done that before. Okay. But old man's beard, I, I'm all about this natural thing, not 
I hate seeing rope and shit in the woods. So oh, yeah. I hate, and it's nothing personal to anybody. If you want no. to make your rope scrapes, go for it. Uh, I'm, I just love everything being natural. And because I have an abundance of old man's beard everywhere, mm-hmm. literally everywhere that I hunt, it's everywhere. I don't have to pack anything in, but no yarn would work real good too. Like a piece of yarn. That's okay. something that anybody, anybody could use. Yes. And people that don't have old man's beard. Absolutely. Uh, I, I just like to have something dangling in my video that shows me exactly what the wind is doing in the thermal yeah. when, when every buck walks into my scrape. Okay. That tells you a ton about how you need to hunt them and where you need to set that stand. Yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, they're, they're, where you have that stand set up relative to that scrape, mm-hmm. the wind could be doing it, something different. So your, your puff bottle yep. could be lying to you essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and like it's it's interesting we brought this up. I just had a boot camp about a month ago and I took 15 guys out in the woods and I took them up on this ridge and I showed them on a map and I did not pre-scout this. I did not like set this up, but I showed them a spot that I'd hunted 10 years ago. Yeah. And I showed them on a map. This is where we're going today. I have not been in there in 10 years, but I can almost guarantee you there'll be a big scrape here and this is why. Well, we walked up in there and there was still a big scrape there. No shit. Yeah. And then I had them tell me, where would you hang a stand? How would you enter and exit this to try to kill a big buck at this scrape? And it got super interesting because everybody was guessing. And I said, everybody just needs to stop and we're going to spend an hour here. And they all looked at me like, what the hell? <laughs> I said, no, we need to spend some time here and start watching this win. And we were we were at a scrape that was down the ridge ways. And, and I said, guys, this, you just, do you see what's going on here with the wind, the thermals and the prevailings are mixing and it's a swirl. You can't hunt here. And they're like, yeah, you're right, Troy. It wouldn't work. Would it? And I go, no. And I said, I want you to feel this. I want you to see this and feel it and sense it so that you understand why so many guys struggle in the mountains with whitetails. Cause th- this is a beautiful spot. There's already a scrape here, pretty good access. You can come in from the East but this wind swirls here. It's no good. So I said, let's walk up to this next bench. Soon as we got up on the next bench, guess what was there? Another one. A better scrape. <laughs> but, get, but guess what also happened up on that next bench? What's that? The prevailing wind worked perfect up on that higher bench. Uh-huh. And it wasn't mixing with the thermal. And the prevailing was able to come up over the top of that bench because we were higher. and We weren't down lower in a bottom. And then the wind for a full hour, we stayed there for an hour. I had them walk all around. I had them pick a kill tree, pick an entrance and exit. And we're up in the mountains and got on a map and showed them where they could come in on a log and road half mile away and come in totally opposite of the way we walked in that day to hunt it. But anyway, after an hour, they all got to sense and feel how that wind worked perfect there for an hour straight. So like I told them, all you need here is a west wind and a south wind. And you could hunt this on any of those two winds. And even a north wind, it'd be cutting it close. And my goal in the mountains is always to get 75% good wind. Oh, yeah. Because if you get 75% good wind in the mountains, you're kicking ass. Oh, heck yeah. And then you stay out of it on a bad wind. But anyway, all that to say, those guys all told me with feedback after the boot camp was over. They said, Troy, that right there taught us more than anything you could have told us in a class because they got to go out and feel it and sense it and 
be patient with it and figure it out. Man, you know, that difference between killer bulletproof setups and a setup that looks beautiful, but the deer bust you in a week and then it's ruined. Yeah, man, this is all stuff that, you know, I'm listening to all this, you know, I, I know we're, we're focusing on big woods, mountain whitetails, but I think there's a lot here that the listeners can take and apply back home. If they're in the everywhere. Mid, yeah. Midwest, Southeast, doesn't matter where you yes. are. Yes. Everywhere I've hunted guys, everywhere, the mountain whitetails have taught me to be so particular about wind and scent too. And I love trapping whitetails. So anybody that are trappers out there that are listening to this, they're going to, they're going to jive on that a little bit because they get the power of scent. Yeah. And I use it to, I use it to make bucks hunt me. So now go with me for a second. When I was young, mm -hmm. and didn't know anything about over-the-counter scents. When I was young, when I was a late teenager, early 20s, I would hunt these scrapes. And I started killing my first nice bucks with bows when I was in my 20s. Late teens, I was killing some little ones, but I was getting it figured out. I started digging up the dirt with my mother's little garden shovel. <laughs> Had a hot scrape, putting okay. it in a Ziploc, freezing it, taking it 5, 10, 20 miles away, putting it in another scrape, and holy shit, did those scrapes blow up. Really? So I was transferring multiple deer profiles to other scrapes just by transferring dirt and licking branches 5, 10, 20 miles away. And now, and this is any... You know, let's talk in relationship in relation to to deer season. This is any time during deer season you're messing with scrapes. Like, just so listeners know, like you're not just doing this during the rut; you're doing it throughout the season. Correct. I build scrapes and monitor scrapes 365 days a year. I like it. Understand? Understand the dirt is what everybody thinks about with a scrape. Mm -hmm. The key to a scrape is a licking branch. All white-tailed deer hit licking branches year-round. Now, why is that? They have they do it to send social messages to all the deer in the herd how healthy they are, that they're still alive, they're around. And even if you watch it there in Texas, I see it in Oklahoma, licking branches are huge. I mean, they are a year-around social post for whitetails. Uh, will they dig it? Will they dig at the dirt year round? No. Will some young bucks pee in a scrape way too early? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the old guys won't. But if you watch closely, even on your property, you're in Texas, right? Mm -hmm. You watch closely. You if you if you took my mix, my synthetic mix that I use right now, and you went out on your property, and you built a scrape like I would built it, and if you make the licking branch look very authentic and like it's been there a long time. Every deer on your property will hit that licking branch within a week. Yeah. Year round. So uh, then you factor, then you factor in my migrating bucks and yeah. does. They got to go 10, 12 miles back up into the mountains where they hide out for the fall, the summer and fall. Mm -hmm. Guess how they recommunicate and let everybody know they made the winter. They go, they go and hit that community they, scrape. They go right back to those community scrapes like clockwork every year. Same does, same bucks, and all the young. Ah. And then think about the conditioning of the mother does that condition their fawns to hit those scrapes when they're babies. Dang. It's it's awesome. It's it's a it's whitetail science that does not get 
it's starting to get a lot of traction because a lot of guys have heard my podcasts yep. and other, other guys out there too, that get it too. I mean, I'm not the only guy in the world that hunts scrapes, but I know that in the mountains for 30 years, I've done it. And when I was initially doing it, well, it was, it's been 35 years, 36, seven years now. Um, when I was talking about scrapes back in my late teens, early twenties to people, people didn't, people thought I was talking about rubs because I said the word scrape. They didn't even know what a scrape was. That's true. There's lots of, I feel like there's still confusion there. Right. And then here's a neat, another added interesting biological play on whitetails. So every place that I set up a mock scrape scene mm -hmm. to kill a big buck at, I mock rub it up three or four big rubs with the same forehead mix that I use on the rub too. Really? So I add about five or six bucks to that rub. Okay. Okay. And then, then the big deer you're trying to kill is like, what in the hell? Who's moved in on me? And he gets pissed. Oh, they do. They come in with their ears pinned back. <laughs> They're ready to kill somebody. It's really cool watching them walk in and seeing the scrape on video for the first time with the rubs in the background. That's freaking awesome. They are just processing like you wouldn't believe in their eyes. You can see it on the video. Man, now the young, the young bucks walk through like kids, you know, do, 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 do. Yep. they run up and like the, they go crazy on the licking branch, but those big deer, those old deer come in and just stare at it and look it all over. They, they sent check it like you wouldn't believe even in the, even in the spring and they just lip curl and scent check it and then they work it and then they start over marking it for me all summer and into the fall if i'm close to them man you're getting me all jacked up for deer season right now it's fun it's fun well you are getting me jacked up i can't and wait it, and the reason i have to do that will is i can't you know i can't feed them in idaho so I can't send, bring them to a destination food source. Now I can intercept them on the way to a destination food source. Okay. Like an apple orchard or an alfalfa field. Heck yeah. But I always throw the scrape into the equation because it gets the big guys to stop and check it right where you want to shoot them. Yeah. Man, you've got me jacked up. I can't wait. <laughs> I think a lot of the listeners are going to be able to take this information. And this is a lot to digest here. And, uh. I a lot of good stuff to digest. I got a lot of guys. I got hundreds of guys all over North America doing this now. Well, with you, a lot of success, a lot of success. You got me doing it. So it it's, it's basic whitetail biology that gets overlooked and that doesn't get enough credit. I agree. I agree, man. All, all food and water is, is basic white, whitetail biology too. All the rut is, is basic whitetail biology. Why not? Why not tap into all of it instead of just one aspect of it? Learn that and let the deer teach you something. The, the deer will teach you more than anything in your environment. Wherever you hunt, tell guys all the time, go learn from your whitetails and learn from your old does and learn from your oldest bucks. Watch them the closest. Yep. Watch them on your videos. Those old does and those old bucks will teach you more about how they navigate a habitat and how they teach the young to navigate it than any other animals out there. Okay. Well, man, Troy, man, I, I know we're running short on time here, but kind of let's give the listeners, give them one last golden nugget to take out in the deer woods with them before we part ways here. I think the best advice I can personally give anybody is 
be your own whitetail hunter. Don't buy into every little fad or trend. See it for yourself. Believe it for yourself before you do it. Test it. And do not worry about living up to somebody else's freaking standards on social media or in the world. Go have a blast. Kill whatever makes you happy. Shoot straight. Be ethical. And just just enjoy the hell out of it. I've, I've had the best time of my life being a whitetail hunter. Some of the best days in my life ever, aside from my sons being born and probably getting married and, you know, have just been being alone with being alone in the whitetail woods or being with my kids in the mountains. I love it, man, man. Uh, good advice there. Troy, where can we find you on social media? If people want to follow uh, you. Yeah. And social media is the best place. My Facebook is usually about packed, but it's just Troy Pottinger. But I, I spend all my whitetail time on Instagram and my handle is MTN underscore man. So mountain man 33. Got it. Well, man, I will uh, drop that down in the description for all y'all. So if y'all want to check out Troy and give him a follow, y'all can head on over there. But Troy, man, just want to say thank you for hopping on the hunt stand podcast with us and dropping some major whitetail knowledge bombs on everybody today. Will, thanks for having me, and I'm looking forward to working with Hunt Stand this year and getting some uh, getting some media out there to you guys, and it should be a blast of a season. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Can't wait. All right, y'all. There you have it. Hopefully, you'll be able to take some of this information from Troy, apply it to chasing after some big mountain bucks if that's what you're wanting to do. He kills them. He gets it done. The man knows what he's doing. So, Troy, we just want to thank him for hopping on the podcast with us. We appreciate y'all tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.